Hello, Wolf Mulder, FBI Special X-Files Unit. Could the baby make cars rise in the air just using its thoughts? Ma'am, my guess is that somewhere in your baby's body is an implant containing technology that's not terrestrial in origin. This device, which is connected to your baby's human nerve cells, utilizes crystalline and nanocarbon microstructures to transmit sensory data to an alien ship in nearby space. (laughs) Or it could be colic, that's correct. Scully, we're flying to Houston to check out this baby. Mulder, I've been looking at all these pink while you were out messages. Apparently, we were supposed to be investigating Russian tampering with the American political process. That's not even what the FBI is for. The FBI is for crop circles and covert mind control programs run by the Knights Templar, visitations from angels, uh, shadow people floating in the sky, the the possibility that the Indigo Girls are a secret military experiment, the existence of a hellmouth in Farmington, Connecticut. I thought we were supposed to, you know, enforce laws? Only if we have time. Scully, why is it so hard for you to believe? Director Comey. You're probably trying to shut us down again, Director Comey, but what about the mysterious floating orange triangle over Nashville? Please calm down. The giant cube hovering in space near Earth's sun. The space-time vortex in Rhode Island. What about Rhode Island itself? What is up with that? Agent Mulder, please. But no, there's a conspiracy reaching into the highest levels of government that meets in darkness and won't allow the truth to come out about the red disc-shaped object sighted over a missile installation in 1967. Agent Mulder. I'm not here to shut you down. You're not? I'm here on direct orders from President Trump. He's very excited about your work. He wants to know if you need more resources. He does? Or snacks. He can get you any snacks you want. But he wants you to check something out. In 1983, he was abducted by a race of bipedal, upright-walking canine beings in a black flying orb. They probed him rectally and were very interested in his hands. Yeah, the the UFO dog people. We, We know all about them. What's wrong? It's no fun to do this stuff if, you know, the, if the president's going to get behind us. But President Trump believes the truth is out there. You know what, Scully? Let's just go look into whatever this thing was that you said about Russia or whatever. They can listen to this show if they still care about UFOs. And now, live from an underground reptile time travel ghost train, or something... Colin McEnroe. All right. Yes, that is a fair question. Whether would Mulder and Scully on the X Files, like if they got total support for their work, it, well, I don't. Know, I think it might not have been any fun or exciting anymore. So, uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We are here to talk about UFOs. Uh, the, the notion of UFOs and what they rep- represent never goes away. Uh, it probably never will go away. I thought it might go away because people just walk around looking at their phones all the time now. So like maybe they'll look, never look up in the sky again and see anything. But that turns out not to be the case, as you're about to find out from our guests. Before I introduce our first set of guests, I do want to quickly tell you, I want to set the scene for you. As some of you know, one of the things that we do occasionally, as often as we can, is to offer this uh, programming, radio programming for a deaf audience. And the way we do it is through American Sign Language interpreters. So two very wonderful ones are here in the studio uh, with me. Uh, That's Sarah and Mary Sue. Uh, And you can see their work on Facebook Live. You go to the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook Live and you can see them interpreting. Obviously, the people that I most want to have do that can't hear me inform them about that possibility. But we do seem to be reaching a pretty broad audience uh, of 
potential uh, enjoyers of the show, people in the deaf community who, who wouldn't have otherwise had access to it. So that's going on. We're not going to talk about it a lot. And then on top of that, just to make things a little bit more complicated, uh, WFSB TV is in here doing <laughs> a program. So we've got another set of TV cameras. So, um, But all of that, will you'll, you won't even notice. Uh, we're going to talk right now about um, the way in which UFOs are understood, uh, how long the conversation has been going on, and what new forms it is about to take. Uh, joining us are Leslie Kane, investigative journalist and author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record, uh, and Peter Davenport, a UFO lecturer, broadcaster, and director of the National UFO Reporting Center. They're both with us by phone. Leslie Kane, I'm going to start with you. Um, you were uh, initially working in public radio, just like me, but out in California, reporting on daily news. How'd that get you to UFOs? Well, what happened was a colleague from France sent me a report called the Cometa Report, um, and just out of the blue, it arrived on my desk, and it was absolutely stunning to me as a journalist because it was a 90-page study put together by high-level officials in France, mainly retired officials, but among them was a four-star general, a three-star admiral, a major general, bunch of engineers and scientists, and they studied uh, some very, very interesting official cases. These are all cases with official documentation from military people and pilots, people like that, and uh, laid out these cases and then came to the conclusion that what they called the extraterrestrial hypothesis was a valid, potentially valid explanation for these cases. They couldn't think of anything else. They said that obviously this hasn't been proven, but it was a rational deduction to make from the cases they studied. And so I thought, as a journalist, this was big news. And that's what got me started on this. I wrote a story about that study in the Boston Globe and never put the uh, subject down after that. That was in 2000 that I published that story. So, Leslie Kane, as I got uh, interested in your work, I read more of it. And uh, one of the things that was clear from your most recent reporting about this, which can be read, I think, on the Huffington Post site, um, there, there was another story uh, about a Chilean sighting. And once again, this the same thing happened. I was reading your reporting, and at one point you mentioned the Chilean government agency that investigates uh, UFO sightings and, and reports of unexplained uh, objects in the sky. And I, I was thinking, wait a minute, there's an agency that does that in the Chilean government? So between that and France, I mean, how much of that is a pattern? How much is the United States an anomaly in the sense that officially we just don't really even recognize this as a subject, at least at the level of our federal government? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much we are an anom anomaly around the world, but I think we're particularly close to it, and we're, we're more significant than a lot of other countries. So the closed attitude that we have has more impact around the world. And yes, there are countries that have official agencies that do full-time work on this topic, believe it or not. And Chile is a really great example of how I think an agency could work in the United States, even a smaller one than the Chileans have. I mean, in that country, they have four full-time staff people. And they get reports from pilots, mainly. And, you know, the country is completely informed of their existence so that officials, pilots, and military people and so on have a place to report their cases. In this country, there is no place for the reports to go. We have Peter Davenport's very excellent research center, and, and you know, he collects cases. But the problem is the civilians do not have 
the proper authority to obtain the information needed in many cases that that would require would be required for a good investigation to take place. And so when you have a government agency, they can get on it immediately, get access to any data that they need immediately, get access to the witnesses and all of that, which is not always easy. I'm sure Peter can tell you about that. So, uh, yes, I do think that uh, I've been advocating for the American government to even just have one staff person to liaison with other countries and do the kind of work that is done in other countries. And uh, it would have a huge impact if we did that. All right. I should say that a little bit later in the show, we're going to have George Nouri himself from coast to coast. And if the government is actually investigating this a lot more than they're telling you, George Nouri is going to be somebody who knows uh, about that. But Peter Davenport, um, as Leslie Kane was saying, um, your phone is often the phone that rings uh, when people do think that they've seen something or don't understand something that they've seen. So how often does it ring? And is it ringing more in 2017 than it did, I don't know, seven to ten years ago or less? Well, the reports we are receiving are much more numerous than they were even just ten years ago. But in response to your question, Colin, we get uh, probably between 10 and 30 telephone calls per day. In addition to that, we receive uh, written reports over our website. We have a blank online report form on our website at ufocenter.com, and people just go to the website, oftentimes without calling, go to the website and submit written reports. But uh, we've been posting between 5,000 and 8,000 reports per year, typically. Now, uh, of that group, you, I'm sure, have your own some version of your own mental triage system, right? I mean, I because I did watch um, The X-Files, I know that the men in black, a.k.a. Jesse Ventura, will show up and say, that's just light reflecting off from Venus. Uh, but some percentage of those things are just light reflecting off from Venus or some equally pre- pedestrian uh, uh, explanation. So I don't know, your, what's your rule of thumb on this? Or, or what percentage of these um, reports that you get aren't easily chargeable off to to something like that? It's very difficult for me to put a percentage to it. It's a reasonable question, Colin, but in order to be able to answer it, you have to be able to say, well, this case is definitely a UFO and this case definitely is not. That's a very difficult proposition to resolve effectively. Uh, but you are correct. We're receiving probably 200 reports per month currently about Venus in the western sky during the early and mid-evening hours. Uh, People look at it, it's very close to the planet Earth currently, so we're getting a lot of reports about it, and reports about Jupiter in the uh, eastern sky during the early morning hours. But there are also the other reports, like the Phoenix Lights event. Hundreds, probably thousands of people saw the objects that night, this is uh, almost 20 years ago, March 13, 1997, we're receiving reports from astronomers, from uh, military pilots, from commercial airline pilots, and even though many of the reports are of Venus or of Jupiter and other things that people report, there is a significant fraction of those reports that come from good, reliable sources. All right. So since you mentioned it, since you opened uh, that particular can of worms, uh, let's hear a little audio connected to the Phoenix Lights. It is the most famous so-called UFO sighting in the world, the Phoenix Lights. There's two side by side. Woo! There's look at 
Oh. I got that Wait. one on video. There's just four of them. Look at there's three of them all together. I got four of them. Those are in the sky. I can't see how this works. How does this Holy work? They're lined up in, in a pattern, man. There's geometry behind this. Major sighting here. All right, so when you see UFOs, don't swear because it just creates a lot of work uh, for some poor editor. That comes from, um, I believe, CBS 5 uh, in Arizona. Uh, and uh, I don't think Jay, who's here, was involved in shooting that at all. But um, so this is uh, 1997. Leslie Kane fleshed this out a little bit. Um, Peter just talked uh, a bit about the Phoenix Lights. But uh, journalist that you are, give us a, a journalistic context for this. Um, yeah, okay, and I'm sure Peter probably knows more about it even than I do, but certainly that, uh, what's, what happened was starting around 8, 8.15 in the evening, I believe, maybe a little bit earlier, uh, people started to report seeing this absolutely massive craft gliding silently over the territory of Arizona, and it went from pretty much from the north to the south. It did pass over Phoenix, and I think the peak of the sighting went lasted about an hour, an hour and a half, um, and it was just that the point about it was that it was seen by so many people. So there was absolutely no question that something was there. And the descriptions were, were just, you know, mind-boggling because of the size of these things and their silence. There was actually more than one. And I think Peter was actually on duty that night, probably mapping the trajectory of these objects, which he could do when people called in and, and he'd have a map and would able, he'd be able to figure out how it was traveling. But um, it was just extremely significant because of the numbers of people that saw it. It wasn't in the middle. It wasn't at 3 in the morning. It was at a reasonable hour. And there was a comet that was supposed to be passing over that night. So a lot of people were outside looking up. And that's why it was seen by so many people. Leslie, has uh, any skeptical organization offered some more concrete explanation as to what this might have been? I mean, there that tends to be a pattern, I think, is that people, you know, I mean, there's an initial wave of reports, and then there's some people who say, no, that's not what that was. That was the BRAF effect of atmospheric interference or something. Yeah, I mean, I think the favorite explanation the skeptics offered was planes flying in formation. And um, the people who saw it, I mean, there's so many holes, there's so many problems with explanations like that. Number one, the thing was completely silent. Number two, many pilots saw it. People, people qualified to recognize what planes flying in formation look like saw it. So I, but I do think that was the most common, common explanation provided by the skeptics, as I recall. And uh, we've never figured out what these objects were. I mean, there was even a lawsuit that was filed uh, a, um, by you know, witnesses in the courts. They took it to the courts and tried to get more information from the Department of Defense about it. Nothing came. And it is hard to, it's hard to imagine that our government, our Department of Defense, would not have been concerned and involved even with something like this, where you have this foreign object flying over one of our population centers for an hour. I mean, how could they not be paying attention to that? But nonetheless, no information was ever released about it. All right. So, Peter Davenport, uh, let's uh, do a thought experiment. So, I wake you out of a deep sleep. You don't have a lot of time to compose yourself. You temporarily forget that I'm uh, a radio host who's asking you a lot of questions for broadcast. And I say, all right, Peter, in your heart of hearts, what's going on here? What do you think, you know, is is happening? Is there, do you have a simple answer to that question? Yeah, I do. A very simple answer is, cuts to the issue of Occam's razor, namely usually the 
simplest explanation is the most reliable or the best one, but it appears to me that our planet is being visited routinely by these craft we've called UFOs for now almost 70 years. They're guided by intelligent creatures, and my strong suspicion, absent proof, but cave paintings seem to suggest that this phenomenon has been going on for a long, long time, and the the bulk of the eyewitness reports, many of them from seemingly highly qualified witnesses, I think supports my statement. We are being visited, and I will not be surprised in the final analysis to discover that we probably live in a galaxy that is teeming not just with life, but teeming with intelligent civilizations. That's my, my suspicion at this point. So because we're on public radio, Peter, and because I'm going to get emails from uh, people about this, and especially because one of the emails is going to come from somebody named Josh Dobbin, I have to say certain listeners probably just went, oh, wait a minute. That's the opposite of Occam's razor. Occam's razor says look around the earth you know, for things that you can recognize, that you can understand, that fit into some kind of scientific pattern. Don't invent some race of creatures that are coming from God knows where and, and say that. No, I'm not the one saying that, but I, yeah. I, Peter, but I, that, I will get emails that say that. So uh, respond. Yeah, well, that usually happens. But what I would invite those people to do who are skeptical is to visit our website or MUFON's website. There are a number of very good, reliable websites on the net with, that are run by reliable, capable people, and they have collected equal amounts of data to what I have in my database and they all say the same thing, that we are being visited by these strange craft that exhibit flight characteristics that cannot, under any circumstance, be ascribed to just terrestrial aircraft. So uh, the people who are the most skeptical, I observe, are generally the ones who have not taken the time to look at the data. So, Peter, um, then the next question is, and since you have heard so many accounts, I mean, you kind of are, you know, one of the very few phone calls that people know how know to make in a situation like this. Uh, and the next question is, and I, I know I'm asking you to speculate, but why are they coming here? They're not coming here to announce to us anything because they never announce anything. And they no. never let us talk to them or any, answer any questions. So, you know, once again, when, when you're thinking quietly about this, what do you think? I don't have an adequate answer for that. Uh, I ruminate on it all the time but have no idea why they're coming here except to say if they're technologically oriented, as they appear to be, that's why they have craft that appear to be able to fly or convey them in at incredible velocities over extreme distances, it suggests to me that they are interested in their environment. And they would probably visit other populated planets just for the purpose of scientific endeavor, for discovery to see how other civilizations live. And then there's the question of whether they may be, in some fashion, participating actively in what goes on in this planet, on this planet. Uh, we don't have an answer to that, but it's very, I think, very easy to explain why a technologically oriented civilization would be coursing through space and visiting planets like ours. 
Um, you've investigated some instances where um, somebody had a fatal encounter with something. Yeah. Um, it, it, we don't know that these would be extraterrestrials or beings emerging from UFOs, but can you say a little bit about that? I think you're probably alluding to the Todd Seas case. Yes. I suspect that Leslie is as familiar with it as I am, but I took some of the early reports. This is an incident that occurred on Sunday morning, the 4th of August, 2002, I believe it was. A gentleman was allegedly seen being taken up into a metallic-looking disc-shaped craft that was suspended above Mount Montour in south-central Pennsylvania, a uh, search party was mounted. The short story is a search party was assembled and deployed. They searched for 41 hours until the gentleman's son found his remains suspended in a tree. And that's about all we know, except for what the coroner recounted to me during a very brief conversation he and I had shortly after the death. The gentleman who died was Mr. Todd Sees. And the significant part of that case is that when his remains were discovered, they were so grossly mutilated that not even his son could positively identify the remains as being those of his late father. It's a tragic, tragic case and very mysterious, and it's been investigated by many people, but it appears that not only the coroner's office, but the local police department are trying to thwart people from getting into that case to any great degree or depth. It's a very interesting case. Leslie, I want to talk a little bit about how this whole subject is perceived. So uh, you worked in public radio. You know I'm on a public radio station right now. You know that some percentage of my audience is going, why is Colin doing a show about this? This is what public radio should be talking about. On the other hand, you know, the, the public opinion research on this, I, I don't know that it's definitive or dispositive, but what I, I look at it and I see, you know, some, sometimes somewhere between 30 and nearly 50 percent of people in the U.S. think that there might be true, true UFOs, true unexplainable flying objects, and that they might be connected to extraterrestrial visitations. So do we kind of – do people kind of keep one foot in, in, in each stream here a little bit? Is, is there a little – are, are we kind of inclined to ridicule this and yet at the same time keep one door open to it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good way to describe it, uh, that certainly there are a lot of people that take it seriously. There are, of course, people who have had their own sightings. There are people who don't dare talk about it because if they're professionals, they might be ridiculed. We, we still have a problem with ridicule, of course. But I also think there is greater openness to it now. And I also want to just differentiate in, in the way you phrased your question, uh, Colin. I think it's important to differentiate between what we know and what we don't know. And, and the phenomenon... The actual physicality of this phenomenon it really has been proven, and that's the point I make in my book. There are enough official cases to show that there is a real phenomenon there. So to say UFOs don't exist is simply factually untrue. We know there are some kind of unidentified flying objects in our skies. What we don't know, though, is what they are. And as Peter, you know, Peter has his deduction about it, which is a, a very rational one. There, there are high-level officials around the world who would agree with Peter. But we haven't proven that part of it yet. So I just think that we need to make a distinction between the hard data that we have of some kind of phenomenon that exists 
and the more speculative interpretation of what it might mean, what it is, where it comes from, whether it's being piloted by beings or whether they're drones or all these questions that we don't have answers for. But nobody can deny that there is something going on. And that, that argument is old by now. You just cannot say UFOs don't exist. All right, so we're going to take a break here. We're going to say a goodbye and thank you so much to Peter Davenport, UFO lecturer, broadcaster, and director of the National UFO Reporting Center. If you see something that you need to report, report it to him. Don't call him about Venus. He doesn't want to hear about Venus. Venus is a planet, you know, so anyway. But if you've got something a little bit more detailed than that, uh, give Peter Davenport a call. Uh, Leslie Kane is going to stay with us, and we are going to add to the conversation uh, broadcasting legend George Nuri from Coast to Coast. We'll talk more about this when we come back. First, I want to ask you, this is a question that I think is very important to me and very important. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Important to the country. When you were in office, and I don't know when this happened or if it happened, did you go through the secret files, the UFO documents? <laughs> Because if I Maybe. was president, that'd be the first thing I did. You know, it's funny. My daughters asked the very same question. They did? Yeah. Would you be allowed to tell your daughters what was in those files? Uh, no. You would not? No. Now that you're out of office, you can do anything you want, right? True. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not telling you. You're not telling me. <laughs> you're not telling me what? Are you not telling me that you looked at them? I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> All right. So that, of course, was uh, uh, President George W. Bush talking to Jimmy Kimmel, uh, a kind of conversation that probably is familiar to both of our guests here. We're talking about UFOs uh, before I bring the guests back on board. I do want to say, uh, once again, just very quickly that uh, we are doing, uh, as we do, you know, like once every two weeks, if we possibly can, uh, what we call Radio for the Deaf. This is um, a radio program which is being made available uh, on, in American Sign Language on Facebook Live on the Colin McEnroe Show of Facebook. 
Facebook Live. We have two superstar interpreters here, uh, Mary Sue Owens, who's my alter ego, and Sarah D'Agostino making her uh, her debut appearance here as an interpreter through this program. So um, obviously, if you can hear my voice, you probably don't need the programming we're talking about, but maybe you can tell somebody else we want as many people as possible to know about it. All right. Moving on here. We are going to talk more about UFOs. We're going to do that with Leslie Kane, who's been with us the whole time, investigative journalist and author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. And joining us, George Nouri, broadcasting legend. I say this as somebody who used to be a host on a show where his program ran. Uh, he's the weekday host of the late night radio talk show Coast to Coast AM and director of Paranormal Date, a dating site for paranormal enthusiasts. Um, George Nouri, welcome to the conversation. Hey, great to join you. I'm looking forward to this. And by the way, thank you for doing this because this information really needs to get out to people. Well, let's talk about this information. So you just heard that clip of Jimmy Kimmel and, and George W. Bush, and they're both talking a little bit, uh, uh, you know, out of one side of their mouths about this. But when you when you hear President Bush, knowing what you know, having done so many shows about this, having taken calls about it, having talked to various investigators about it, what do you think President George W. Bush or any president knows about this that they're not telling? That's a great question. I don't think most presidents have been informed about the UFO situation. I know Bill Clinton tried to find out and they stonewalled him. Uh, very few presidents have been told what's really going on. I think Richard Nixon was told uh, because there's an incredible story that we can talk about about how he showed Jackie Gleason, the old comedian, uh, an extraterrestrial uh, who was uh, housed up down in Homestead, uh, Florida, down there at the Air Force Base. But I just don't think that the area that covers UFOs and has kept it secret for so many years informs our president what's going on. Now, I find that abominable because they need to be told, but, but they're not. So I saw the clip with uh, President Bush on Jimmy Kimmel, and uh, they joked about it. They laughed about it. Was there some truth to it? Probably. But I don't even think that uh, President George Bush was told what's going on. Uh, I think they try. Mm -hmm. I think they, they send people out. John Podesta tried to do it. Uh, they've all tried to do it, but they get stonewalled for some reason. Leslie Kane, I mean, a lot of your reporting it does sort of get down to who knows what. And so let's say that George Nouri is correct and that a lot of this doesn't get to the president. But it, it does seem as though the Air Force would be, you know, really well poised to know what's flying around out there. So I, I don't know, what's your, what's your working hypothesis about this, Leslie Kane? Is it uh, that the Air Force knows something and they just don't ever tell anybody? Um, I suspect that certain individuals within the Air Force probably do know something. I'm not sure that they think it's important enough to devote time and money to. It may be something that they don't want to talk about because they don't want to let people know that there's something they can't control that's in, their, in our skies. I mean, what government, certainly the United States government doesn't want to make an announcement like that. But, I, you know, I think a lot of it is that we don't have really spectacular, well-documented sightings that often. And I just don't think that people involved in government uh, you know, even if they have a personal interest in this, consider it to be important enough that they're going to focus on it when they have all these pressing problems that they're dealing with, can't even keep up with 
the issues that the world is facing now. So it's just not high on the agenda of most people in government right now. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, um, so George Nouri, somebody might very well say, well, you know, what if you weren't keeping track of North Korea because you were too interested in, in extraterrestrials and, and UFOs? Uh, that would be kind of a black mark for the Air Force. Is, is it simply the case that it's, it's unfashionable and not something that they can really make a case for as a priority? And by the way, I just hi to Leslie. I love it when she's on the program with us on Coast to Coast. She does a tremendous job. So, Thank Leslie, uh, nice so to be much. here with you. Great to hear your voice again, too. Uh, always fun. Uh, we we have talked about the possibilities of why the media doesn't really do a thorough job in investigating these cases. And as you just mentioned, Colin, you know, you talk about North Korea, and that's really going to be a tinderbox uh, sooner than later, sadly enough. And people tend to say, well, you can't talk about UFOs when you've got all these problems going on in the world. I remember... Stephen Greer was going to make his disclosure announcement. He had put together a whole group of insiders, uh, and it happened during 9-11, and he was blown out of the water for that. He, wa- he wasn't able to really accomplish what he wanted to do. Stephen Bassett, who heads up the Paradigm Research Group and has been looking for disclosure for years and years and years, we've talked about the possibility, why isn't this being done? Why isn't it coming out? And And I just think the media tends to laugh about this and puts it on the back burner whenever these stories come out. It's unfortunate. I understand how they do it. There's so many other earth-shaking issues and problems, but uh, when it comes down to it, the UFO investigation by the media gets put way on the back burner, and that's unfortunate. You need people like Leslie to go out and do what they do, or we'd never find out what's happening. So night after night uh, on Coast to Coast, people are listening very carefully. It's an overnight program, as a one profiler for of George for Atlantic Magazine said. People just there's a different kind of focus uh, people often have with really late night radio. They they may really pay attention in a way that they're not paying attention to my program right now. They're not distracted by as many things. It's late at night. Uh, let's hear a little bit of what George's program sounds like. Tonight, our guest is Stephen Quayle. We're going to talk about the possibility of a real or faked alien invasion. Stephen, my friend, how are you? Uh, good evening, George. I'm well, thank you. It's good. going to be nice to talk about so many very oh, subjects. Gosh, you've been doing your homework, my friend. Well, I have, and uh, just the, the whole alien card now is coming out. The Obviously, the statements from the Vatican preparing people for the eventual encounter with Aliens, the wars in the heavens, so to speak, people seeing triangular-shaped craft all over the world, and the whole revelation of UFOs, ancient technology, uh, the war that's really in what I would call the spiritual realm, the fallen angels, uh, angels, if you will, that have had their wings clipped and now have to resort to a technology that's so vastly superior to what most people think is the uh, rocket, Saturn rocket, uh, mentality and technology. Again, we're out there already. 
All right. So, George Nuri, you're doing Coast to Coast, uh, late night programming. I'm hosting a public radio show. We have very uh, different kinds of audiences. Uh, and some of my audience is probably going, why is he doing this? Why is he playing this kind of thing? Um, and, and one thing that I'm wondering, and I know that you are something of a student of politics and that you followed the last election cycle very closely and maybe even had some admiration for uh, some of the things that Donald Trump said on the campaign trail. And I'm not suggesting that there's a bright, unbroken line between these two things. But one of the working hypotheses about the 2016 election was there were a lot of people whose concerns weren't being met, weren't being listened to, that they couldn't find anybody else within the conventional framework of political discourse who would pay attention to what was on their minds. And, and it does seem, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I see a little bit of parallelism here that, that your audience, you sometimes refer to them as night people, that, that they may feel very much the same way. I don't know how much overlap there is, but they may feel very much the same way. Nobody listens. Our audience uh, on Coast to Coast, probably one of the most perceptive groups of people I've ever dealt with in my uh, years and years of broadcasting. Um, For the election, for example, they have been very astute in their comments and remarks. Donald Trump's success and the reason why he got elected was because people are tired of mainstream politicians. So what he brought during his campaign was a feeling of freshness, uh, somebody who cares about the middle class, somebody who's going to come out and just do what they have to do. There are many issues that Donald Trump presented that uh, I was not happy with, and we talked about it on Coast to Coast. Uh, The problem he has right now is somebody's got to take his smartphone away from him and get him to stop tweeting. Uh, He needs to start acting like a president and not like some sophomore kid uh, who's, you know, every time he pouts or gets upset, sends off a tweet. And that's that's going to be his undoing if he keeps doing this. He's going to lose the respect of a lot of people, unfortunately, because he had, in many cases, fresh ideas and brought a feeling of hope to people. And he's going to he's going to lose that. But tying that back into the UFO investigations, people at the same time want answers. You know, in that old uh, Jack Nicholson movie, uh, you can't handle the truth, is what he said. People can handle the truth. I, I, I have watched this now for 13 years, where people understand what's going on. And if President Trump or whoever made an announcement at any time that we're being, inve- we're being um, visited, we've been visited, my audience would say, well, we knew this. We always knew this. And they would not be in shock, as most other groups probably would be. I think maybe the headline out of this show is that the host of Coast to Coast tells President Trump, stop tweeting such weird stuff. Uh, yes. So uh, take the that, phone away if, from him. If that doesn't get his attention, I don't know what will. Hey, Leslie, um, you know, it, it does seem as though when we talk about UFOs and talk about UFO sightings, there's one way that we could divide them into two groups. UFO sightings that have fairly few sighters uh, and, and sighters who, for all we know, were predisposed to believe in UFOs. And then there are sightings which are seen by a lot of people, including 
as far as we can tell, or just law of averages, people who prior to looking at them didn't think that there were any such thing as UFOs. One of the ones that people talk about is something called the Belgian UFO wave. It wasn't just one sighting. It was a bunch. So, Leslie, just give us a quick nutshell uh, of that one. Sure, and, and just to, yeah, I think, and I also think the distinction is really important because as a journalist, I'm only interested in the cases that have you know much much documentation to them, and are officially based. So, and there are cases like that. I just wanted to make that point. There is a distinction between those different types of cases, and the Belgian wave is an example. In, in ni- beginning in November of 1989, there were uh, for about two years. Uh, consistent sightings of a triangular craft or multiple crafts flying over Belgium for some odd reason. And um, what was significant about it was just the volume of people that saw it over a long period of time. The fact that the Belgian government was actively actively involved in investigating it. And uh, Colonel General, he's now a general, but Colonel Wilfred de Brouwer was assigned the job within the Air Force of being the liaison person to scientists who were investigating and working with him. And they collected an enormous amount of data on on this case. Uh, Many, many reports and audio recordings and drawings, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been to Belgium. I've talked to many witnesses. You know, I've seen the data. There were police officers. And the first night, for instance, of that event in November of 1989, there were 13 police officers in eight different locations that saw this object. There were 143 sightings that night. Many more people saw them because a lot of the sightings were by multiple witnesses. So this is another case similar to the Phoenix Lights, only the Phoenix Lights took place in one evening. This lasted for two years. And what's important about it is the attitude of the the Air Force within Belgium, which is in such contrast to the way we are here important thing is that the Air Force gave a press conference about it. They didn't withhold any information. They actually sent up uh, Air Force jets. F-16s, yeah. Yeah, F-16s to try to track the objects, to get closer to the objects. They were actively involved in trying to identify them because these were foreign sort of, you could call them invaders, foreign aircraft within protected airspace that weren't supposed to be there. So they had no choice but to take it on. All right, we got we Leslie. Yeah. We got to grab a break right here. Leslie Kane, thank you so much for doing this today. Investigative journalist and author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. George Nouri, broadcasting legend, is going to stay with us. Benjamin Radford, a skeptic about this stuff, is going to join us. Uh, talk about maybe what else those Belgium things could have been. Evidence remains in debate. Documents of our own Air Force base. Additional terrestrial information. Other planets with life population. My observation. Scientists study pictures of a flying disc right on earth anthropologists are finest visitors probably live with us they can mimic us it's sort of what we're seeing in the cinemas Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf, with special thanks to Amanda Fish, who coordinated the valet parking for the UFOs. 
Also, thanks to the people who helped with the radio for the deaf, including Heather Brandon, Joe Koss, Frankie Graziano, Sam Hockaday, Tucker Ives, Ryan Karen King, and Katie Talarski. And a big thanks to Source Interpreting, Mary Sue Owens, Sarah D'Agostino, and Pat Clark. The part of Bill Curry was played by Richard Dreyfus. All of our shows are available at wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, what do Rorschach blots make you think of? And now, back to Colin. I'm sure we left somebody, some people out of those thank yous. It takes so many people. It eventually won't, but it takes a lot of people to do this thing where we actually create radio programming that can be absorbed and appreciated by a deaf audience. So I saw Sarah Gerhold out in the lobby. I'll thank her, too. I don't think we would have gotten as far as we have without Sarah. So um, we are doing that right now. But meanwhile, we're also having a conversation uh, about UFOs. We are going to add uh, one new voice to the conversation. Uh, George Nouri is still with us, weekday host of the late night radio talk show Coast to Coast AM and the creator of Paranormal Date, a dating site for paranormal enthusiasts. Joining us now, Benjamin Radford, deputy editor of Skeptical Inquirer magazine and author of Mysterious New Mexico, Miracles, Magic, and Monsters in the Land of Enchantment. So Benjamin Radford, I think you caught the tail end of a conversation about the so-called Belgian wave of UFO sightings. Um, I know just from doing a little bit of background reading about this that there are people who say, well, maybe this isn't such a big mystery after all. So if it isn't, uh, then what is it? Well, yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, there's there's all sorts of different uh, different things that people are citing in the skies, and so it's certainly true. You know, as Leslie pointed out, you know that that uh, that UFOs do exist. Uh, do 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 unidentified flying objects? Are they seen? Absolutely. Just because something is in the sky. Uh, doesn't mean that doesn't mean that's some alien spacecraft. It could be could be a known craft. It could be Venus. It could be any number of things. And so, no one's really questioning whether things fly in our skies that can't be immediately identified. Uh, there's there's all there's all sorts of things that, that people might not recognize. Um, you know, in the case in the Belgian case, you know, again, there's you have you know you have a lot of people who are seeing a lot of different things, uh, and there's not just one blanket explanation. Uh, but we can look at, for example, specific cases. So, uh, for example, there was a, a photograph that actually uh, Leslie Keane endorsed as being one of the most convincing pieces of evidence of a sighting to date that turned out to be a photograph of painted styrofoam <laughs> with some small lights on it. So, you know, the question becomes, if you have all these experts that are, you know, vouching for the authenticity of these photographs and videos, uh, you know, how, how are we supposed to believe anything they're saying if even the best minds uh, are not coming to a real conclusion. Well, let me throw that back to George Nouri. So there's two ways to look at this, right, George? One of them is, you know, wow, a lot of people, you know, say they've seen these things, so there must be something there. Another way to look at it and still be something of a Fox Mulder believer is, well, even if most of them are wrong, even if most of them are ascribable to very simple humdrum explanations, the one or two percent that aren't still stand as important is... Which camp are you in there? Well, look, uh, I have a runniness argument with uh, my investigative reporter, Linda Moulton Howe, who investigates crop formations. And she would like to believe that uh, most of them are done by very strange possible reasons, extraterrestrial craft, earth anomalies, anything that may be doing it. And I told her, I said, Linda, all you need is one authentic crop formation. That's all, just uh, a tenth of a percent. In the case of UFOs, absolutely most of these cases are man-made, weather-related. They can't describe what they are, perhaps, but they could be satellites. 
They're not extraterrestrial at all. But there are many unusual things out there that I think possibly could be. And people who talk about them and people who witness them, those are the great stories. And uh, even though, again, I think a tremendous percent in the high 90s are describable or they are man-made, whatever they may be, they're not extraterrestrial, you still have that small camp of truly UFOs, unidentified flying objects. What the heck are they? And I'd like to cite back to, of course, the work of the late J. Allen Hynek, who was a consultant to Project Blue Book, which was investigating UFOs for the, for the Air Force and for the government. And he changed when he got out of that business for the Air Force, when he was no longer the consultant to Project Blue Book, he became a believer that something very unusual was happening and that people may be seeing something that is of extraterrestrial origin. And I'd like to cite that because if a guy like that can change, anything's possible. <laughs> Good point. Uh, George Nury, so great to talk to you. It really is. Uh, 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 I've obviously followed your work and used to be on the station that aired your show. It's uh, been really fun to have your voice uh, as part of our conversation. I want to finish with Benjamin Radford. We're almost out of time here. Look, Benjamin Radford, skeptic or believer, one thing that we can all say, people want to believe. You know, I mean, I guess that was one of Fox Mulder's ma- mantras, <laughs> I want to believe. So why do people want to believe? What does it give them? Well, you know, I, what happens is that people sort of impose our, our own worldviews on, on aliens. You know, they sort of reflect our hopes and our fears, right? We, we you know, what you find is that in the, in the early uh, stages, you had, uh, like, War of the Worlds-type scary aliens that, you know, H.G. Wells uh, talked about, you know, the, the alien invasion-type stuff. And then in the 1950s, with the Cold War, you had the emergence of the sort of more benevolent, you know, uh, space, uh, loving space brothers who were looking out for us and trying to steer us away from, from nuclear war. And so uh, in a lot of ways, aliens sort of reflect, you know, what we, what we ourselves want to be. Um, and, and so, I mean, that's part of it. The other part that I find curious is, you know, I was hearing the discussion about how the American government has closed the idea of aliens and UFOs. But just two weeks ago, NASA announced the discovery of seven Earth-sized planets that might have alien life. How did that happen if our government is trying to cover up the fact that aliens, you know, might exist? Did the, did the NASA astronomers not get the memo to keep it quiet? I just don't, I just don't get it. Well, uh, we've only got about a minute left, Benjamin Radford, but I mean, really from the Manhattan Project to the JFK assassination to Watergate to Vietnam, there was a kind of a growing sense, don't trust what the government says. Right. Do, do you think that feeds into that notion that therefore this could be another thing? I do, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, and the thing about aliens is that it, because, because they're sort of distant, just sort of physically and emotionally, you know, they're, they're way out there. And so, you know, there's a tendency to ascribe the lack of hard evidence to someone trying to keep things from us, right? That's where the conspiracy comes in. Like, you know, it, it's not that alien evidence isn't there. It's that the believers say, well, you know, they're hiding it from us. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're the ones making the claims. It's, the burden of proof is not on the skeptics. It's on the, it's on the believers. Good point. Benjamin Radford, author of Mysterious New Mexico Miracles, Magic and Monsters in the Land of Enchantment. Thanks for joining us, giving a skeptic's point of view. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. And give us some comments uh, at uh, the Facebook page, The Colin McEnroe Show. How are we doing? And say something wonderful about our wonderful interpreters, Mary Sue and Sarah. Okay, one moment. Uh, President Trump, the aliens are here to meet you. 
I better use some Tic Tacs just in case they start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. I just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the. Take us away from your leader.